Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. Well, things have changed and life is full of adjustments. I mentioned uh, the last time I was on that we'd be starting uh, Wednesday a new podcast format of No Nonsense Catholic, but things have changed uh, uh, pretty drastically here right at the beginning of the year. And so um, I'm keeping the radio format uh, as per the powers that be here at VMPR. And my time slot has moved from Wednesday at noon to Mondays at 10 here in the rocking chair between Jesus 911 and the Terry and Jesse show. So uh, rolling with it and glad to have you along with us today. Also want to remind you or to encourage you to uh, stay tuned to VMPR and listen to or watch the Terry and Jesse show today. We have a special show with uh, Father Murr and Terry Barber and myself uh, talking about this kind of bombshell that has dropped in regard to uh, Cardinal Fernandez and a book that he wrote in 1998 about uh, uh, sensual spirituality. And uh, it is, it's pretty powerful. And we recorded this uh, like moments after it broke, uh, seven o'clock uh, LA time this morning. And so I, I imagine if you're on the internet, you may have already seen something about it, but uh, we're here to give the commentary, and so I will leave you to that. I'm not going to bother with it on, on no nonsense. Or actually, we've uh, started the year 2024, and it's customary to look back at the big stories of the previous year. And uh, really, two of the biggest stories in the church from 2023 came in the 11th hour. Uh, in November, we had the papal motu proprio calling for a revolution in Catholic theology, and in December, on the 18th, fiducia supplicants. Uh, about blessing uh, irregular unions, which were going to regular couples or the individuals in couples. It's, it's essentially blessings that aren't blessings for couples that aren't couples, and we're, we're going to talk about that later. But first, uh, the new year is a time for resolutions, and with so many people leaving the church over the current reign of confusion and scandal, I wanted to start uh, the year with seven ways to strengthen your faith in 2024. And although that, that title might be a bit misleading because, I mean, let's face it, strengthening your faith is a lifelong journey. And it's also a deeply personal endeavor. But if you're confused, if you're looking for guidance, if you're looking for ways to help someone else who's struggling with their faith, I want to share with you right now seven key principles and practices that I found in the Catechism of the Catholic Church that will empower you to nurture, deepen, and strengthen your faith in these trying times. Uh, to begin with, faith is just another word for trust. And in the context of religious faith, that ultimately means trust in God. And trust implies a personal relationship, and the heart of personal relationships is communication. So the first item on our list of seven ways to strengthen your faith in 2024 is prayer. Regular and heartfelt prayer, absolutely essential for deepening your relationship with God. Because prayer is how we communicate with the persons of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this, of course, can take many forms. There's liturgical prayer like the Holy Mass, the Liturgy of the Hours, popular devotions like the Holy Rosary, the Angelus, the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, as well as prayers in your own words that just come directly from the heart. To pray literally means to ask, and that word makes a handy acrostic to help understand prayer. Remember, our Lord said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. That's from Matthew 7, 7. A-S-K, ask, seek, knock. Through prayer, 
you can communicate with God in order to express your gratitude, to ask his pardon, to offer up your concerns, and to seek his guidance. These, by the way, are the four great ends of prayer, adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, and supplication or petition. The Catechism, in paragraphs 2700 to 2724, emphasizes the importance of the various forms of prayer, so vocal prayer, meditation, and contemplative prayer. So that's number one. Number two is the sacraments. Active participation in the sacraments is absolutely vital for the nourishment of your faith. Regular reception of the sacraments, especially uh, Eucharist and the Sacrament of Reconciliation, provides spiritual nourishment and forgiveness and grace. Devoutly, and that means worthily, receiving the sacraments helps to strengthen and to sustain your faith. Number three is uh, sacred scripture. I said that communication is the heart of any personal relationship, and so it is. And the Holy Bible is one of the chief ways that God communicates with us. It was St. Jerome who said, we speak to God when we pray. He speaks to us when we read the Holy Scriptures. So engaging with the Word of God in the, the Holy Bible is crucial for deepening your understanding of God's revelation and his plan for your salvation. Regularly reading and reflecting on passages in the Bible will help you grow in knowledge and in love of God. Again, it was St. Jerome who said, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. Number four is being part of a community. This is an important way to strengthen your faith. As practicing Catholic—sorry, no, rented lips—as a practicing Catholic, you should belong to a parish community. And later on in the program, I'm, I want to go into further detail uh, about the importance of being a member of the body of Christ. And in many parishes, there are smaller groups that can provide support and encouragement and opportunities for your spiritual growth, or you know, also in your family, these, these uh, small units of the people that you know and love. Catholics, of course, are obliged to go to Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation, but that should be more than, than mere routine. Actively engaging in communal worship, participating in faith formation, uh, Bible study, to learn your faith, to better appreciate the liturgy, sharing your faith with others, these are all ways that community can help to strengthen your faith. And again, you can check out the Catechism, uh, paragraphs 2179 through 2182. Number five of the seven ways to strengthen your faith in 2024 is virtuous living. For all that the Second Vatican Council was about the Church's encounter with the modern world, the primary theme of Vatican II was downright medieval, in a good way. Because the main message of that council, articulated particularly in Lumen Gentium and Apostolicum Maxiositatem, was the universal call to holiness. Striving to live a virtuous life in accordance with the teachings of Jesus Christ is an important aspect, or the important aspect, of strengthening your faith. Practicing the virtues, faith, hope, and charity, humility, honesty, uh, forgiveness, this helps to align your life with the will of God and fosters your spiritual growth. So that's uh, Catechism 1803 through 1845. Number six is spiritual reading. And I'm drawing a distinction here. We've already noted the importance of daily scripture reading, whether it's you know the liturgy of the hours or, or the mass readings or, or some other Bible reading plan. But 
The Imitation of Christ, uh, Book 1, Chapter 5, reminds us that what we seek in spiritual reading is the good of our soul. And so we should, quote, just as gladly read simple and devout books as those of deep and subtle learning. So engaging with, uh, you know, the Bible, with spiritual classics and works of theology, that can deepen your understanding of the faith, but so can the lives of the saints, or books of popular devotions, which can uh, inspire you on your spiritual journey. Spiritual reading, especially taking time to reflect on what you read, can provide you with important insights and effective guidance for strengthening your faith. And speaking of which, number seven, seek guidance. It can be helpful to seek guidance from a spiritual director, a trusted priest, a knowledgeable mentor, someone who can provide support and answer questions and, uh, and offer guidance on your, on your faith journey, so-called. And, of course, you can expect a certain amount of spiritual direction from the priest in the sacrament of penance. But, uh, you know, just uh, what this Saturday I spent <laughs> over an hour in a confession line. So I just want to say, if you have some issue that's more complex than a few words of spiritual advice will resolve, uh, I would highly recommend making an appointment, okay, at the very least for the sake of the other folks in line. Um, it, but in my experience, though, I will say that finding a spiritual director is much easier said than done. However, the good news is that we live in a time when good materials are more available than ever before. Uh, the Holy Bible, in many Catholic translations, the catechisms from the, the Roman Catechism to the Baltimore Catechism to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, all available online for free. And it is well to remember that while there are many universal principles when it comes to strengthening your faith, one size does not necessarily fit all. It is, as I mentioned at the beginning, a personal process, and it will very likely involve periods of doubt and struggle, uh, as well as growth. So what if you're struggling with your faith? Well, first thing I will say to you is don't panic. It is common for Christians, all Christians, to struggle with their faith at one time or another. In Mark chapter 16, we can see how uh, some of Jesus' own disciples didn't believe that it was him when he appeared after the resurrection. Uh, in, in Mark 16, 9 through 13, the evangelist documents two occasions where those who were the closest to Jesus didn't believe that he'd risen from the dead. After he had risen from the dead early on the first day of the week, Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had driven out seven demons. She then went forth and related the story of his appearance to his mourning and weeping companions. However, when they heard that he was alive and that she had seen him, they refused to believe it. It's Mark 16, verses 9 through 11, and then 12 through 13. After this, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them as they were on their way into the country. They then returned and reported the news to the others, but they did not believe them either. Now, how could Jesus' own disciples, those who had walked with him, not believe all that they had seen and heard? You know, St. Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, but, but that which we had seen with our own eyes and handled with our own hands. It's difficult, and we'll talk about why when we come back.
Okay, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Um, sorry, I kind of ran up to the end there in that first segment, but we're talking about ways to strengthen our faith in the new year, and and why was it so difficult? You know, talking about struggling with their faith, why was it so difficult for the apostles themselves to believe that Jesus has risen, just as he told them that he would? And the answer is because faith can be a delicate thing. It needs to be nurtured, needs to be cared for. Seriously, if those closest to Jesus could fall into unbelief, then so can we. But fortunately for us, the, the, the Holy Bible provides inspired instruction on how we can increase our faith and our fortitude. Specifically, it mentions three things from the list that we just enumerated that you can do to strengthen your faith if it begins to weaken. And that first one is to read the Holy Scriptures, then pray for a stronger faith, uh, pray both in private and in public at Holy Mass, and lastly, act on your faith. See, as I already mentioned, one of the best ways to strengthen your faith is to read the Holy Scriptures with the understanding that the Bible is God's Word to you today. After all, how can you obey God's words if you don't know what they are? In his letter to the Romans, St. Paul wrote, Faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the Word of Christ. And this is a great incentive to read the daily Bible readings from the Church's liturgy. Because even if you can't go to daily Mass and hear the readings proclaimed and then hear the priest's homily, you can at least read them privately. And, and also there's, there's, there's much uh, uh, daily commentary available online, uh, also in various periodicals. And that goes for the Liturgy of the Hours as well. In any case, one of the first things you need to do if you want to strengthen your faith is to commit to reading the Bible every day. Now, the second action that we can take to increase our faith is to pray for it. I have an old catechism from the 20s. It says, faith is a gift for which we must always pray, for God gives it to us out of his own pure goodness. It is a gift. You know, you remember the story in the gospel where the father uh, of a boy that's possessed by an unclean spirit asked Jesus for help. It says Mark chapter 9, 21 through 23, he says, Jesus asked the father, how long has the boy been in this condition? From childhood, he replied. The demon has often tried to kill him by throwing him into a fire or into water. If it is possible for you to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus answered, if it is possible. All things are possible for one who has faith. And then take note of the man's response. He said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And those are six words of wisdom that we can all learn from and apply in our own lives. We believe, you and I. But sometimes our faith is not as strong as we need it to be. And in these situations, you can do exactly as that father did in this example. You declare your belief and ask Jesus to help you overcome any doubts that the world, the flesh, or the devil might put into your mind. That's why the Catholic Church recommends that we make an act of faith, as well as hope and charity, every day. Finally, you can have all the faith in the world, but if you do not act on your faith, it will weaken over time. Bishop Sheen used to say, if you don't behave the way that you believe, you'll end up believing the way you behave. The Apostle James wrote about the importance of acting on your faith in his epistle. He says, this is in chapter 2, What good is it, my brethren, if someone claims to have faith but does not have good works? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is naked and lacks his or her daily food. If one of you says to such a person, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but does not take care of that person's physical needs, then what good is, what is the good of that? 
In the same way, faith by itself is dead if it does not have works. But perhaps someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. So show me your faith without works, and by my works I will show you my faith. You believe that there is one God. You do well to assert that, but even the demons believe and tremble. And then here's the kicker. You fool, he says. Do you want proof that faith without works is futile? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Thus you can see that his faith and his works were active together. His faith was brought to completion by works. Thus the words of Scripture were fulfilled that say Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You can see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. For just as the body is dead without a spirit, so faith without works is also dead. It's James 2, 14 through 26. So clearly to have faith, you must behave as you believe. To believe also means to act. Having faith is pointless unless you act on it. And conversely, the more we act on our faith, the stronger it will become. Friend, Satan is a relentless enemy. He would love nothing more than for you to turn away from your faith and get caught up in sin. And as a Catholic Christian, you cannot allow that to happen. As God's children, baptized Catholics can take comfort in knowing that even when our faith gets shaken, God's love remains constant. When we are weak, he is strong. And when you are struggling with your faith because of what's happening in the world or in the church, you must persevere in hope. And you notice I say hope and, and not optimism. You know, positive thinking is all well and good, but experience often contradicts our optimism. Hope, on the other hand, is a theological virtue that is based on divine revelation, the promises of God Almighty, by which you can rest assured that whatever happens, you will share in the ultimate victory, provided you remain faithful. I'll give the last word to St. Paul from Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And that's no nonsense. All right. I mentioned uh, last time that the Christmas season technically lasts until the 2nd of February. But the 12 days of Christmas concluded on January 5th, which was followed by the Feast of the Epiphany, on the 6th, although it was celebrated in the Novus Ordo on, on Sunday the 7th this year. And the, Epi the Epiphany, of course, is the liturgical memorial of when the wise men from the East uh, followed the star and came to adore the infant Jesus. Now, consequently, this is a time of year when folks come out of the woodwork with their various explanations of what the star of Bethlehem might have really been. And the reason being that outside the Bible, ancient records make no mention of a miraculous star. And so some speculate that it could have been, say, a supernova. But again, there's no evidence of such an event. So let's start with the biblical account from Matthew 2, verse 2. After Jesus had been born in Bethlehem of Judea, during the reign of King Herod, wise men traveled from the east and arrived in Jerusalem, inquiring, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw the rising of his star, and we have come to pay him homage. On hearing about their inquiry, King Herod was greatly troubled, as was true of the whole of Jerusalem. 
Therefore, he summoned all the chief priests and the scribes and questioned them about where the Christ was to be born. They replied, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus has the prophet written, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men, and he ascertained from them the exact time of the star's appearance. After which he sent them on to Bethlehem, saying, Go forth and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I can go and pay him homage. After receiving these instructions from the king, the wise men set out, and behold, the star that they had seen at its rising proceeded ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. The sight of the star filled them with great joy, and when they entered the house, they beheld the child with Mary his mother. Falling to their knees, they paid him homage. Then they opened their treasure chests and offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And since they had been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another route. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, not much is known about these mysterious astrologers, right? These, these stargazers, traditionally called wise men, from which we get the English word wizard, and called in uh, the Greek of the New Testament by the Persian word magi, from which we derive the words magic and magician. And we really don't know for sure where they came from or how many there were. I mean, because of the Old Testament texts of Psalm 72, 11 and 16, and Isaiah 60, chapter 6, the wise men were thought to be kings. And small-t tradition presents us with three magi, known as Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, one for each of the three famous gifts. Uh, tradition says that they were men of high position from Parthia, near the ancient site of Babylon. And so perhaps the first question is, how did these Gentile wizards know that the star represented the Messiah of Israel? And there's various theories. Uh, first, they could have been descended from Jews who remained in Babylon after the exile and knew the Old Testament predictions of the Messiah's coming. Or they might have been uh, Eastern astrologers who studied ancient manuscripts from around the world. And because of the Jewish exile centuries earlier, they would have known the New Testament prophecies. Or they may simply have had a special message from God directing them to the Messiah. Uh, some say these astrologers were each from a different land representing all the Gentile nations and the entire world bowing before Jesus. These men came from faraway lands and recognized Jesus as Messiah when most of the chosen people did not. In any case, Matthew gives us a picture of Jesus as the king over the whole world and not merely Judea. Now, the astrologers said they saw Jesus' star. And in the book of Numbers 24-17, uh, Balaam referred to a coming star from Jacob. So when the scripture says that they saw his star in the east, that could simply mean that they consulted their uh, charts regarding the prophecy, you know, charts of the star, and, and knew that it was now the time because of the position of the stars. You know, modern astrologers believe that we are in an era dominated by the constellation of Aquarius, hence the, the song, the age of Aquarius, even the term new age. And it's because they believe that the preceding 2,000 years were dominated by the sign of Pisces. Pisces being represented by a fish, they would suggest that that was the, the beginning of the Christian era of two millennia ago, right? And that we've now entered a post-Christian era, of which, there, by the way, there is no such thing as a post-Christian era. But, but uh, perhaps the constellation of Pisces is the star to which the Magi referred. Um, and, and some would come out and say that 
you know, they, they want to look for unusual phenomena, uh, such as the conjunction of Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars back in 6 BC. But, you know, those planets would have been visible, but distinguishable from one another. Not, they didn't appear as one big star. And, and it doesn't coincide with Christ's birth either, but, but uh, you know, years before, six years before. And, and I don't think it would have taken the Magi six years to travel from, you know, modern-day Iran to Palestine. Others would suggest the star of Bethlehem, like I said, was a supernova or a comet appeared, that appeared in the, the sky at the time of Christ's birth. But there's no extra biblical evidence for either occurrence near the time of the birth of Jesus. Others would offer still other explanations. Now, personally, I don't care much for this line of thinking. For one thing, it smacks of fundamentalism on the one hand, you know, an overly literalistic reading of the scriptures, and skepticism, the, the demythologization of scripture on the other, right? that is looking for so-called rational explanations of the miraculous events in the Bible. Like, like the claim that when Moses and the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, it was only ankle deep, which of course does not explain how Pharaoh's army and all their horses drowned in a few inches of water. That's another question. But we'll come back to the question of the Star of Bethlehem and we return with more No Nonsense Catholics right after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We've been talking about the so-called rational explanations for the Star of Bethlehem. And, uh, and how really there isn't any corroborating evidence for any of these so-called scientific explanations. And I, I just wanted to say that uh, even concerning those with the best intentions, St. Thomas Aquinas said, the truth of our faith becomes a matter of ridicule among the infidels if any Catholic not gifted with the necessary scientific learning presents as dogma what scientific scrutiny shows to be false. And there's simply no compelling reason to even try to find a scientific explanation for the star of Bethlehem, especially when we know that everything in heaven and on earth is subject to God's will. The wise men came to Herod to say, where is he that's born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star in the east and are come to adore him. You know, the, the astrology only got them so far. It was the chief priests and the scribes who related to them that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And when the Magi journeyed there, scripture says, behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And the scripture says the wise men entered a house. And this suggests that the wise men didn't visit Jesus on the night of his birth like the shepherds did. Jesus was perhaps one or two years old by the time the Magi found him. And by this time, the Holy Family was living in a house. And I, I suspect they likely intended to stay in Bethlehem for a while, at least until the angel informed St. Joseph of Herod's plot to kill the child. And the astrologers presented the Christ child with gifts. And tradition sees in these gifts symbols of Christ's identity and his mission. Gold is a gift for a king. Incense is what is offered to God in worship. And myrrh was a spice used to anoint a body for burial. So here he is, king, who is God and man. So back to the star. And, and notwithstanding all these the, the various rational explanations, so-called, could not God, who created the heavens, have caused a special star to signal the arrival of his son? And whatever the nature of that star, we know that these astrologers traveled something over a thousand miles searching for a king, and they found him. In other words, isn't the simplest explanation that it was a miracle? 
God could certainly have placed a sign in the heavens to summon the kings to come pay homage to Jesus, and when they got close, to make that sign appear over the house of the Holy Family in Bethlehem. Furthermore, this event might not have been witnessed by anyone but the wise men. Consider how the, the vision of the angelic hosts was given only to some poor shepherds, or, or how some apparitions of Our Lady have only been visible to a few select people. Perhaps the vision of the miraculous star was meant for the eyes of the wise men alone. The point is that salvation history is filled with miracles that were only visible to those with the eyes of faith. So whether the star of Bethlehem was some observable celestial phenomenon or a miraculous sign meant for the Magi alone, the fact is the wise men came and brought their gifts and worshipped Jesus Christ for who he is, God the Son, second person of the Blessed Trinity, the Savior of the world. This is the essence of true worship, honoring Christ for who he is and being willing to offer him your best. Scripture says we are to offer our very bodies as living sacrifices and that we give worship to God alone because he alone is the perfect, just, and almighty creator of the universe who is worthy of all your love and the best you have to give. And that's no nonsense. And that's the good news. Uh, and now to some news that's not so good. I talked about the uh, the bombshells from the end of 2023. And uh, well, by now, faithful Catholics are only too familiar with the progression. You know, uh, the Holy See, Pope Francis, either says or otherwise officially approves something that is offensive to pious ears and series of heresy. Uh, next, respectable commentators, including prominent theologians, even bishops and cardinals, point out the obvious errors and raise reasonable questions. Uh, around that time, the, the New Order apologetics machine goes into gear uh, to shoot the messenger by telling us that everything that comes out of the Holy See is automatically orthodox and traditional, and then you know twist themselves into intellectual pretzels to prove that nothing has really changed. That the big announcement isn't, isn't a big announcement after all. And then finally, if there's a big enough stink, someone in the Vatican will try and walk it back. But the damage will already have been done. Changes in practice will proceed apace. The traditional commentators will be proven right, and the Pope will remain silent. Now, I've not commented much on this until now because I was waiting for the cycle to run its course. And I'm speaking about the big story from the end of 2023, fiducia supplicants on the pastoral meaning of blessings, document from the uh, now called Dicastery of the Doctrine of the Faith. And as usual, the ambiguities, the non-sequiturs, and the outright errors are peppered amongst enough true statements to provide the, the Pope's with a plenitude of pull quotes. Uh, and then this, this recently released explanation of fiducia supplicants from Cardinal Fernandez begins with a bullet list of such points. But that doesn't change the fact that 90% pure isn't pure enough. You know, if you asked for a soft drink and I gave you a beverage that was 10% cyanide and 90% root beer, it would still be deadly. Furthermore, unlike virtue, truth is not on a mean between two extremes. The truth does not lie in the center, nor can divine truth admit of compromise. Now, the, the main objection to fiducia supplicants, and this is from bishops and even bishops' conferences from around the world, is that it presents a pastoral theology and pastoral guidelines which are now, uh, allow clerics to provide uh, so-called pastoral blessings 
defined as non-liturgical and even non-sacramental to couples in quote-unquote irregular situations, that is, couples who are in sexual relationships that the church regards as objectively sinful. The document includes among these irregular situations unmarried couples that are cohabitating, Catholic couples in marriages that are legal but not sacramental, so for example in a civil marriage, or the situation where, uh, wherein a Catholic man and or woman, having once validly received the sacrament of holy matrimony, is subsequently divorced and remarried without benefit of annulment. Now I trust that you see the problem. Unfortunately, many don't, which is why St. Thomas Aquinas said, rarely affirm, seldom deny, always distinguish. And if you don't see it, the elephant in the room is that fiducia supplicants creates the impression of moral equivalence between Catholics in an irregular marriage and same-sex couples. And those two situations are apples and oranges. And failing to make that particular distinction reveals, I think, the ulterior motive underlying this document. Despite the, uh, the, the, the many protestations that it, quote-unquote, does not change the Church's teaching on marriage, it's frankly beside the point. It changes the Church's teaching on blessings. And it treats homosexual couples in the same category as heterosexual couples. And speaking of distinctions, within matrimony, the physical expression of conjugal love is not merely allowed. It's blessed. It's sacred. That's why fornication and adultery are sins, mortal sins, because they remove the conjugal embrace from its sacramental context. But sodomy is never licit, much less holy. On the contrary, it is ever and always a dreadful mortal sin. There is no situation, no concrete circumstances in which it can ever be legitimized. To even suggest as much is a sacrilege. So with apologies to the apologists who want to believe that there's nothing new in this document that, that gives blessings that aren't blessings to couples that aren't couples, fiducia supplicants clearly innovates to give blessings to irregular and same-sex couples, couples, not individuals. Now, let's face it, if such pastoral blessings were intended only for individuals and not couples, as some insist, there would be no need for a document such as this. Failing to distinguish between homosexual couples and married couples while trying to create a false distinction between the couple and their relationship that makes them a couple is 100% pure grade-A nonsense. Now, I don't have the time or the stomach to go into to excruciating detail, and many have already done so anyhow. Last Friday, uh, Terry Barber and I, with a, a little help from Bishop Strickland, recorded a special fireside chat about fiducia supplicants, and we went into all of the aspects of it. And it is going to be available exclusively to our 25 and over monthly donors, $25 and over. So if you're looking for a reason to become a monthly donor in 2024 or to up your current monthly donation to, to $25 or more, we certainly need the help. And you will receive a link to our Fireside Chat each month and have exclusive access to the archive of all the previous Fireside Chats. It's a chance to be in on uh, a very candid conversations that do not take place on the air. Okay, enough of the commercial. Suffice it to say that Fiducia Supplicants is one of the first fruits of what should have been the biggest story of 2023, which was Pope Francis's latest motu proprio, approving new statutes for the Pontifical Academy of Theology. The Pope says that he's not simply looking for the old theology to be applied to new situations, which would be the traditional approach. 
Rather, he wants what he calls, quote, a courageous cultural revolution and how theology is done and what constitutes meaningful theological knowledge. Cultural revolution, I seem to remember that term from somewhere. Uh, in short, what he's calling for is a, uh, uh, an emphasis or even exclusive use of what is called inductive theology, which considers uh, concrete situations as a source of theology, which differs from traditional deductive theology, which, uh, you know, instead of proceeding from divine revelation to application of the concrete, it instead proceeds from the concrete situation to make judgments on divine revelation, which follows from Pope Francis's off-stated opinion that the definitive demands of our religion are mere ideals that may or may not be achieved. So applied to, to fiducia supplicants, the Pope's inductive theology can be expressed in, in the following syllogisms that were offered by Pope Pius XII back in 1951. So first, the inductive. The main premise is living in chastity is impossible for me. Right? This is the alleged reality of a concrete human experience. So living in chastity is impossible for me, minor premise, but God does not demand the impossible. This we know from revelation and from reason. Therefore, the conclusion is that God does not demand that I live in chastity. And now you can see what happens when you try and make a general assertion from a particular premise. <clears throat> you know, namely an invalid inference that contradicts divine revelation. See how this approach turns Catholic theology on its head. When we come back, we're going to have the proper syllogism of um, the classical Catholic theology and discuss what it means for you and me. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, right before the break, I mentioned a um, Saint Pius or Pope uh, Pius the Twelfth and uh, and his syllogisms regarding inductive and deductive theology. And we we looked at the uh, the false syllogism of inductive theology, which uh, begins with concrete experience. Living in chastity is impossible for me, allegedly, uh, but. God does not demand the impossible, therefore he does not demand that people live in charity, which is, you know, making a, a general assertion about the teaching of the church from a particular premise of concrete circumstance. But then the, the Pope offered the true syllogism. Major premise is God does not demand the impossible, which we know from divine revelation and reason. But God demands that people live in chastity, also known from divine revelation and reason. Therefore, Living in chastity is possible for me, which is the inescapable and certain application of what is known to be true. So using the, the, the new inductive method, the, the new prefect for the doctrine of the faith says, well, since we can't bless irregular uh, unions of same-sex couples because of the nature of their relationships, well, we'll just invent a new kind of blessing. A new ministerial blessing, the previously unheard of category of quote-unquote pastoral blessings. That is, priestly blessings that are not only non-liturgical, but non-sacramental. Now, you can search through the catechisms and Catholic dictionaries for the term pastoral blessing until your eyes bleed. And you will not find it, because as Cardinal Fernandez's explanation puts it, quote, the real novelty, okay, let's underline that word, the novelty, the innovation, the unheard of aspect 
of this declaration, the one that requires a generous effort of reception and from which no one should declare themselves excluded, is not the possibility of blessing couples in irregular situations. It is the invitation to distinguish between two different forms of blessings, liturgical or ritualized and spontaneous or pastoral. The presentation clearly explains, and then he's quoting from fiducial supplicants, that the value of this document is that it offers a specific and innovative contribution to the pastoral meaning of blessings, permitting a broadening and enrichment of the classical understanding of blessings, which is closely linked to a liturgical perspective. This theological reflection based on the pastoral vision of Pope Francis implies a real development from what's been said about blessings in the magisterium and the official texts of the church, unquote. <clears throat> Pardon me. In other words, this theological concept is an unheard of novelty. It's an innovation which could never have proceeded from divine revelation, but only from the unprecedented source of our concrete situations, which is frankly a handy euphemism for our sinfulness. Now, like I said, if you want a blow-by-blow -blow exploration of fladucious supplicants and its consequences, I encourage you to become a monthly donor or up your donation at $25 a month or more and check out our latest fireside chat where Terry Barber and I uh, go into some detail and also with a, a message from Bishop Strickland. Now, I will uh, hasten to add that, that LGBTQ advocates, people like Father Martin and his fellow travelers, have hailed fiducious supplicants as a great step forward. Well, you know, in a sense, I would agree that it represents a step forward. Unfortunately, just one more step forward on the broad road to perdition, which is why the first words of our Lord's earthly ministry were repent and believe in the gospel. The word repent literally means to turn back. Ever since the Garden of Eden, mankind has always and ever tried to go its own way. But Jesus invites you and me to turn from that way, to turn from our way and to turn back to God. Jesus says, I am the way and no one comes to the Father except through me. His way is the only way to salvation. And that's no nonsense. All right, uh, to, to wrap up, and, and I'm not going to be able to get to everything that I prepared, but I said earlier that I would talk uh, more on this before we go. And if you recall, number four on our list of seven ways to strengthen your faith in 2024 was community. According to the Catechism, uh, the church is the body of Christ. In the unity of this body, there is a diversity of members and functions. All members are linked to one another, especially to those who are suffering, to the poor and persecuted. See, like the Holy Bible, the Catechism knows nothing of so-called me and Jesus Christianity. The mystical body of Christ is a biblical concept that's explained in detail in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and this conception understands the Church as a spiritual reality, intimately united to Christ, <clears throat> and highlights the profound union between Christ the head and the baptized faithful, who are the members that form the one mystical body. Catechism also teaches that the mystical body of Christ is a reality that transcends earthly boundaries and includes all the faithful, both living and deceased. And it's through the sacraments, especially baptism, that individuals are incorporated into this mystical body and become members of the church. This understanding of the church as the body of Christ is explicitly found in Holy Scripture. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 through 27, St. Paul writes, For in the one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, and 
There are many members, but one body. And if one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice together with it. You, therefore, are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. Father Bill McCarthy, God rest his soul, used to say, or call the sacraments, making family God's way. Because through baptism, we are made the adopted sons and daughters of God and brothers and sisters of Christ. There are no foreigners in a family. Among brothers and sisters, there are no strangers. And I'm not usually one for sports analogies, but you, you can compare the body of Christ to a baseball team. You know, if one of the players strikes out, it doesn't just pull down his batting average, it hinders the team by that much as well. Conversely, if he hits a home run, it boosts his average and helps the whole team. Therefore, God doesn't just want us to, to pray for ourselves, but for others, and to assist those on earth and in purgatory by offering our prayers, works, sacrifices, and penances for them. <laughs> it's a, both a consolation and a privilege to think that um, what we can do, uh, not only to benefit ourselves, but others as well. And it is not reasonable to assume that when you've helped, a, or I should say, is it not reasonable to assume that when you've helped a poor soul get to heaven, that they will reciprocate and intercede for you so that you may join them in the heavenly kingdom? Uh, the Catechism also teaches with St. Paul that Christ is the head of the mystical body and the faithful are the members. Each member has a unique role and function within the body and all are called to contribute to the growth and mission of the church. Uh, this understanding is, emphasizes the importance of unity and cooperation and mutual support among the members of the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, 20 through 21, St. Paul says, there are many members, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you, any more than the head can say to the feet, I do not need you. Furthermore, the mystical body of Christ is not limited to the visible structure of the church on earth. It also includes the souls in purgatory and the saints in heaven. The saints who have reached their ultimate union with Christ actively participate in the life of the church by interceding for the faithful on earth. In summary, the mystical body of Christ is a profound spiritual reality that encompasses the unity of Christ with the baptized faithful, and it emphasizes the intimate relationship between Christ as the head and the members of the church, highlighting the unity love, and sanctity that exist within this mystical body. In other words, there's no such thing as an isolated Christian. Now, we've just gone through the holidays, and that can be a very lonely time for some people. And having passed through the holidays and entering into the dog days of winter can be a time when uh, people become uh, depressed. But if you're Catholic, wherever you are, you're not alone because you are joined to the millions of Catholics all over the world and to an army of saints in heaven. And just as the whole ball club benefits from the, the hits and runs of one player, so all Catholics share in the spiritual riches of the church. We all share in the fruits of the Holy Mass, wherever it's celebrated, whatever form it is celebrated. You participate in those graces. And through your own prayers and sacrifices, you not only benefit yourself, 
but also the other members of the mystical body throughout the world. And that's no nonsense. All right, looks like we've come to the end of yet another episode, uh, uh, edition of No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, back to stay in the radio format and on Mondays now, move to Mondays uh, from Wednesdays. We're going to be sending out an email, hopefully later today, that uh, will alert people to the new schedule. It's already up on the website. Uh, Gary Machuda has moved on to bigger and better things. And so in the place of hands-on apologetics at the 10 o'clock slot, we're going to have my program on Mondays, like today. Tuesdays and Wednesdays, I believe, is going to be the Bishop Strickland Hour. And then or on Thursdays, we'll have um, Dr. Sandoval's program. And then Bible with the Barbers on Friday. All in the uh, the rocking chair slot from 10 to 11 between Jesus 911 at 9 o'clock and the Terry and Jesse show at 11 o'clock. Also, I just wanted to, to mention, and again, by the time you listen to this, if you're not listening live, or even possibly if you are listening live, uh, just a few hours ago, five, six hours ago, uh, it went public, These uh, an English translation of some chapters from a 1998 book from Cardinal Fernandez that uh, equates sensuality, in fact, the... the uh, desire for or the experience of sexual climax with spiritual union with God. And uh, we don't go much into the actual uh, quotes from the book because it's, uh, you know, for most of them couldn't be shared on uh, the air. But uh, I will be on, we recorded it early this morning, right after the news broke, around seven o'clock LA time. And Terry Barber and I and Father Murr discuss this new um, revelation, this newly uh, uncovered book from uh, Cardinal Fernandez and what the implications are. And I think it's it's worth a listen. And I just wanted to say that this isn't a matter of, of gossip. This isn't a matter of, of, you know, trying to be titillating or, or, or appeal to the lower nature. In fact, I, I encourage you not <laughs> to read the, the actual text because it is uh, pretty deeply scandalous. But I just want to say that, that um, you know, our, our Lord said that it must needs that scandals come, but woe to the man by whom they come. And I just want to say that, you know, it isn't calumny to point out the truth of these things because calumny is, is telling the truth about somebody and when the person you're telling doesn't have a right to know, but you do. All right. So thank you so much. God bless you. Look forward to next time on No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. God bless you and your family. Mm -hmm.